0: It's Monday, May
1: 7th, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can support us and find ad-free versions of our show at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. So I'm a big fan of the history of science. I actually think that one of the big tragedies of having so much information available at our fingertips now is that we actually don't go back far enough and look at old papers
2: and they have impacts today if we're willing to go back,
1: for sure. And and I certainly don't, you know, there's there's just too much science out there going on that we don't want to be reinventing the wheel, right? We want to be moving forward, not just doing studies that have been done fifty years ago that we've forgotten about. And so I kind of pride myself in having a, a, what I think is a pretty decent understanding of the history of, of neuroscience, at least in my subfield, and. I have to say I was very surprised to learn that, in fact, uh, our entire field has been ignoring a pretty important contribution by a neuroscientist from the 1950s that probably would have changed a lot of the things that we think about in terms of the brain.
2: This is weird to hear because neuroscience is famous for elevating their patient-centered stories. Like we know about H.M. who Mm -hmm. turned into the patient that... Memento is based off, the film Memento is based off of, and everyone has heard about Gage with that spike going through his skull. So how did we miss somebody?
1: Well, it's not a patient that we missed. It's a surgeon that we missed. So in the 1950s, there's a, a very famous study ca- that came out uh, by uh, a pair of scientists named Olds and Milner. And what they did is they implanted a electrode in a part of the brain of a rodent uh, called the nucleus accumbens. And they taught the rodents to press a lever that would lead to a little bit of stimulation in the nucleus accumbens. And let me tell you, those rodents wanted nothing more to do than to press that. Lever. I mean, they would, they would ignore a mate in heat in order to press that lever, they would run over an electric shocked grid to press that lever, which by the way, they wouldn't do if they were starving and there was food on the other side. So whatever that lever was doing was incredibly motivating to the rats. And I say motivating because at first we thought, well, those rats must just be getting a lot of pleasure. They must be really enjoying pressing the lever. We don't actually know that because we can't ask the rats, did you enjoy that? Or is it just that it was highly motivating for them to press that lever? So maybe it just made them want to press that lever that and much more.
2: Even if they could answer, could they tell the difference between those two things?
1: Well, I would think so. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, wanting and liking. So I would hope that, you know, you would tell the difference. But anyway, this is this is this this continues to be a, a debate in, in neuroscience, but I think most people will argue now, yes, there's good evidence that nucleus accumbens really is a pleasure center. It's a liking center. If you stimulate it, it makes you feel good. Now, humans are more complicated. We can't just put an electrode into our brains and stimulate it all day long and do nothing else and, and have of, you know, all the fun in the world. But what if we could? And we didn't know that in the 1950s, that this wouldn't work for human beings. And so, in fact, there was a man who did just that. He implanted an electrode in the nucleus cumbens in human patients. And I have to say, I hadn't heard about this work until I read a book by Lona Frank, detailing the very life of this particular individual. So, Lona Frank is a journalist and an author, and she also has a PhD in neurobiology. And her most recent book is called The Pleasure Shock. And it's available at booksellers everywhere. And that will be our interview for today. So, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Lona Frank.
2: This episode was brought to you by Udemy, the largest marketplace for online learning. Whether you want to learn something new or just sharpen your skills, Udemy has an extensive library of over 65,000 courses taught by expert instructors. From web development to digital marketing to Japanese cooking courses, Udemy has something for everyone. While other online learning companies charge hundreds of dollars per class, Udemy courses start at just 11.99. Plus, each course comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee for risk-free learning. Every day, students around the world choose Udemy to discover new passions, expand their skills, and even change careers. Improve your life through learning. Download the Udemy app to learn anytime, anywhere, or visit ude.my slash inquiring today. That's ude.my inquiring.
1: Lona Frank, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you. So when I first saw your book, I was uh, a little bit surprised, probably for the same reason as I was reading it, that you were to discover that, in fact, there were implanted electrodes in humans as far back as the 1950s. Um, Because as you mentioned, most of us neuroscientists think of this as something that started in the 80s with, you know, potential treatments for Parkinson's. And it always made me wonder why... When in 1950, Olsen Milner published that paper in in uh, rats in which they implanted an electrode, you know, into the part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. You know, those rats wanted nothing more than to self stimulate in that region, right? So it was sort of like, you know, we thought about it as the pleasure center, and it, you know, I always wondered like, why can't we just do that in humans and essentially, <laughs> you know, solve problems like depression and you know, uh, anhedonia, you know, just by having this little st- Stimulating electrode, and, and yet that's kind of a scary thought, because then, like, why would you do anything else?
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but it, it seems that we actually, we do mostly want to do something else as well. It, it doesn't work the way it, it works in rats. I mean, but I think that the really interesting thing about discovering Heath and this, uh, his, um, his whole project is that, that he was, I mean, he was really onto something really early. He had this thought that schizophrenia, which was his big interest, he, his passion, he wanted to really, he wanted to cure schizophrenia. He wanted to figure out what was the, the cause of schizophrenia. And he had this idea from Shandorado, Rado, uh, who was a pupil of Freud, in fact, that anhedonia is the central symptom really in schizophrenia. It, it, it's the most important symptom. So he thought that what, what you could perhaps do was if you could get into the brain, if you could make that anhedonic person who was unable to feel any pleasure or, you know, positive feeling, if you could make them feel this, you know, pleasure response, you might sort of jolt them out of their schizophrenic isolation and make them amenable to therapy, you know, talk therapy basically.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a very different view of uh of of schizophrenia, you know, compared, you know, at least at least for most lay people, you know, the the primary symptoms associated with it be these sort of like positive symptoms of hallucinations and delusions. And even though we know that the, you know, profile of a person with schizophrenia can vary greatly between individuals and even between episodes, it's interesting to see that he sort of latched onto this idea that it's this lack of the ability to experience pleasure that maybe drive some of these other behaviors.
3: And also, I mean, that idea is, is is gaining ground again. I mean, you hear more and more about how the negative symptom of anhedonia is really central and really important to do something about because you can dampen people's hallucinations, but but if they still if they're anhedonic, it, it doesn't really make a great difference. I mean it's anhedonia is really, really horrible. Uh, and and so there are actually plans now to try deep brain stimulation for exactly anhedonia in schizophrenia. Uh, and and when I talked to one of the people in Canada who's uh, who's setting this trial up, <laughs> and so we talked over the phone, and I called him and I said, "Do you know that that you know fifty sixty years ago there was this person and uh, this psychiatrist in New Orleans trying to do exactly the same thing?" And he said, "What?" It, it, is that true? It, I, I've never heard about that. It's so wild. And yeah, it is pretty wild.
1: What was it? Like, I mean, how did you discover Dr. Heath's
3: work? Well, I discovered his work by basically I was sitting, this is, you know, a few years back, I was sitting on my newspaper desk uh, here in Denmark, I, I write uh, science poems for a newspaper. And I was researching the story on deep brain stimulation um, because I thought it was really interesting that I had, of course, heard about it as, you know, a treatment for Parkinson's. And I thought like everybody else, this was something they came up with for Parkinson's. And now it's moving into uh, psychiatric uh, diseases. They're trying it out for, you know, anything from depression to OCD, Tourette's syndrome, anorexia, whatever. So I thought... I would write a story about uh this sort of moving from movement disorders to psychiatric illnesses. And I just saw this note somewhere in an article about this guy called Robert Heath, who did this odd experiment with implanting electrodes in the pleasure center of a gay man. This was back in the seventies. And I thought that's, that sounds really odd. And I went back and I, you know, dug out some of his original articles and, and found out that, God, he, he actually started this in 1950 for schizophrenia. And I thought it was really interesting that I had never heard of this guy. I mean, I have done a lot of stories about uh, psychiatry. I'm, You know, my own PhD is in neurobiology, and I had never heard about uh, Robert Heath. I had never come across him in any of the histories of psychiatry, so on and so forth. So I just started to dig into this uh because I thought that there must be a really interesting story here, a pioneer who's, you know, completely forgotten.
1: Yeah, I mean I I I'm sort of in, in the same boat. For my dissertation I uh I, I did research, you know, uh recording from individual neurons in, in patients with epilepsy. So, you know, the sort of neurophysiology was not foreign to me. And I had also never heard about this. Um, and so yeah, so, so tell us the story. So tell us about um, Dr. Heath and, and what he was trying to accomplish and, and what made him think I mean, it was, was it was it the Olden Milner study that kind of influenced, you know, his thinking about why this might work in humans? Um, what what
3: was it? Yeah, uh, it was not at all. Uh, Milner. I think he was actually um, very disappointed that Olden Milner sort of you know, uh, became the people known for discovering the Pleasure Center because he was working on this in humans at the same time. Anyway, uh, Robert Heath was uh, both a psychiatrist and a neurologist. And he was trained at Columbia University, which was in the 40s and 50s, sort of the epicenter of, of American psychiatry. And he was a very sort of, you know, young, up-and-coming uh, psychiatrist. And he was, uh, at some point, he was involved in what was called the Columbia Greystone Project, uh, which was one of the first uh, larger um, studies to determine whether lobotomy uh, or tipectomy, which was actually used very much at that time for schizophrenia and for other mental illnesses. You know, you cut out a piece of, of the frontal lobes, basically, and hoped that people were better. Um, And he was uh, the psychiatrist on this project who was examining the patients who had lobotomies for these uh, illnesses and people who didn't have them and uh, made this whole comparison and actually concluded that uh, tipectomy, which is a kind of lobotomy, um, was not a good uh, treatment for schizophrenia at all. And and what he came up with was that, you know, mostly people just end up with with side effects, flattened emotions, uh, basically no affect, uh, different personality. So he had the idea that, you know, since it doesn't apparently help to do something to the frontal lobes, uh, the higher centers of the brain, the sort of more intellectual centers, he thought, well, we should probably try to, to go deeper into the brain and manipulate you know, emotional areas of the brain uh, that lie beneath uh, the lobes or the, uh, the the cortex. And so he had this idea from the studies of the trapectomy that there was this area that he called the septum, which is, encompasses the nucleus accumbens. Uh, they didn't know the nucleus accumbens at the time, but it was in the septum. And he had the idea that that must be where these emotional pleasurable areas uh, are placed. So if we go in there and instead of like lobotomy, cut out a piece of the brain, basically go in with an electrode because the brain is an electrical organ and stimulate the area and see what happens. And if you can, as I said before, sort of jolt the person into, you know, uh, feeling pleasure, feeling positive emotions, and then You know, uh, give them therapy and perhaps, you know, get them out of the hospital. And so he was actually headhunted, uh, from Tulane University, uh, because he had this idea and they wanted at that point in, in 1949, Tulane was in New Orleans. It was, it was a, you know, good university, but they wanted more. They wanted to be the Harvard of the South. So they, you know, uh, hired ambitious young men with, you know, great uh, scientific plants, and he was one of them. And he was given a whole new department of neurology and psychiatry, and a lot of money, and basically dominion over uh, a big group of researchers that he brought with him: physiologists, you know, uh, an anthropologist, a psychiatrist, um, a surgeon, and so on and so forth. And they started uh, doing a lot of a, a lot of experiments on cats first to see what happens if you take out the septum. The cats seem to actually get symptoms very much like schizophrenia in humans. Um, But in the end, they had to try it out in people. So uh, they got a group of of, uh, schizophrenic patients, I think it was 25, the first group, and and tried this uh, operation going in, putting in one electrode into the septum and stimulating uh, the people um, to see what happened. And they put out the first monograph of this called Studies in Schizophrenia in, in 1954, and had a great symposium at Tulane where they called in other psychiatrists, you know, the people that had been Heath's mentors at Columbia and, and so on, and, and presented these experiments where it seemed that about half, um, a little less than half of, of the patients got some sort of, of positive results from this, um, from this treatment. And that was, uh, that was the beginning of the whole thing.
1: And so when they, you know, um, obviously the surgery itself is, is fairly invasive, but then once the electrode is implanted, um, in this case, did they just have like a kind of uh, device like a sort of a pacemaker where they could turn it on and off themselves, or would they come into the lab and get like hooked up to a stimulator? How, how did that work?
3: In the beginning, it was, uh, it was exactly like, like you say, they would come into the lab once a week or something and get an hour of stimulation. And, uh, then they would, you know, um, go away again. And for some, it seemed to help them, uh, and, and even, you know, for a year, two years after they stopped the treatment, got out of hospital, got back to their families, so on and so forth. Um, later on, he would develop an actual brain pacemaker, where you would put in uh, electrodes in the brain and have a little sort of uh, a stimulator uh, operate or um, placed under the skin like you have today, basically. A little a clunkier model, I would say, but but still, it was something that, that you know, uh, was continuous stimulation in, instead of, of just when they were in the lab. But for the first... Ten years, I think, uh, most experiments and treatments were with uh, simply electrodes that were implanted and then stimulated in the lab intermittently.
1: And this is around the same time, uh, you know, in as the antipsychotics were discovered to also be effective in terms of treating those, you know, positive symptoms of of hallucinations and delusions. And is that what sort of supplanted this particular procedure? Um, or were these patients, you know, taking antipsychotics anyway, and this was a sort of an additional thing? Um, you know, what happened next?
3: What happened was that the as you say, the antipsychotics uh, went on the market, and Heath and his uh, department uh, they were actually some of the first people to um, to try these out uh, in a trial uh, and so they basically abandoned stimulation electrode stimulation for schizophrenia uh, because you know the the antipsychotics were were pretty effective and so he moved on to you could say, uh, you know, a strain strain of of experiments where he got into um, trying to map out the the brain circuits for both pleasure and pain and memory, because he got very interested in um, uh, not just, you know, treating patients, but also figuring out, you know, what can we say about the causes for these various illnesses? Can we you know, can we use this uh, treatment method to, to other things than schizophrenia? And, and, and can we actually map out where are these circuits that, you know, we could use uh, in order to manipulate, say, you know, something like OCD or depression or, or, or you know, even forms of epilepsy. So he got into this whole um, experimentation and mapping but at the same time, uh, these were patients that, that he was treating. So uh, so it, it went from only sort of, uh, you know, treatment modality to this mix of, you know, yeah, he's, he was treating some patients. He was also experimenting on them. And I think that has uh, that is one of the reasons that when some people look at him today, they would say that, oh, God, this is so, you know, this is absolutely unethical you can't just you know experiment on people like that you have to either you know it has to be treatment and there has to be a rationale and 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 when you go into actually experiment on people doing brain surgery then you you cross into you know unethical territory
1: yeah so sorry so what i was going to say is that um you know and 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 now looking back on it it's easy with with uh the kinds of regulations that we have in place to see, you know, the mistakes that he might have made from that standpoint. But at the time, there really weren't, uh, you know, these kinds of rules and and internal review boards and, and, and places to go to sort of get approval uh, for these kinds of studies.
3: No, I mean, we often forget, uh, and even people who are in research today often forget that all the rules that they have learned that, you know, uh, they should comply with were not in place at all. Uh And, in fact, when you look at what Heath was doing, I think that uh, that you can say, I mean, he, he did go out and, and get consent from these people. You can always say yes, but at the time, you know, there was so much um, authoritarian medicine that people would do what the doctor suggested or basically what the doctor told them to do. But still, there was consent. There was consent from the families. And I have also... And this is an interesting thing, I think, in in the whole, in the book, I describe how I actually get into, you know, his world and his work and and sort of unfold the story by uh, getting a lot of material that that nobody else has seen. And so at some point I got access to all the films that that he made of these experiments because he was he was very forward thinking. So he filmed all these experiments and, you know, documented what was happening. And when I see uh, these mapping experiments um, where they stimulate patients and, you know, ask them, you know, how they feel, what is happening, and suddenly, you know, uh, they have a very painful exper- uh, experience of something because they're stimulated in, uh, say, a part of the amygdala, for example, that, that is part of the... Uh, the pain circuit, or they have very pleasurable experiment because they're uh, or experience because they're stimulated in in a pleasure center. Um, when I see these recordings, it's very clear that it's it's a uh, it's a collaboration between the patient and and the doctor. They sit there, they discuss this lucidly, and and there is no coercion involved. As, as you know, as far as I can see, and from the interviews I did with with uh, people who worked with Heath at the time. They said the same. You know, this was something that that you know was not in any way exploitative or done just for his own you know uh, satisfaction or whatever. It, it was really you know trying to figure out these you know uh, secrets of the brain and the secrets of mental illness. And and this was this was at a time when you know there were no scanners, there were you know uh, very little knowledge about, you know, uh, the chemical, uh, the chemicals of the brain, the uh, the various uh, signaling molecules and, and so on and so forth. So it was, it was really pioneering work, I think, and and really interesting work, a lot of it.
1: So, so why do you think that he doesn't have a place in our textbooks? I mean, why did we not hear about this work?
3: I think he was pretty much written off at the time uh, by Influential people as, you know, there's this crank in New Orleans doing this weird stuff that nobody else is interested in. Um, there was, of course, there was um, uh, uh, another guy, um, uh, Delgado, who was, who was at Yale uh, at uh, basically the same time he was doing uh, work mainly on animals, uh, monkeys uh, and cats in, at Yale, in the 60s, I think, mostly Uh, a little bit in the 50s. And um, he was also doing a few studies on patients, but but they were basically just the two of them. And um, I think Heath was sort of, he was also a character that was not good at, um, you know, collaborating with people. Um, And so he didn't, I mean, he had a lot of uh, he had a lot of collaborators um, at the time uh, and, and some of them I spoke to and they said that, well, he was, you know, he was a great uh, inspiration for people he worked with and, and they would go off and, and they would, you know, be inspired by him to do their thing at other universities and, and in other research groups. But he was not good at, you know, um, getting a following and actually setting up, uh, you know, this new area of study for some reason. He was also a, a, a character who was um envied by many, is is what several people have told me. Uh he was extremely good looking, he had all this money, he had this, you know, whole department. He could do whatever he wanted. Um and, and so there were many factors I think uh that that came into, you know, getting him sort of uh written off as oh God, yeah. He's he's doing all that stuff that, that we don't really care about. So mainly, you know, other people at the time were either like in the 50s, a lot of Freudians around. And, and of course, they didn't care for anything to do with, you know, uh, the brain and, and, and schizophrenia and mental illness because they thought it was all environmental. And then you had the, um, uh, the people more interested in chemistry coming in later. So he was basically very alone, I think.
1: And even you had trouble getting access to some of his files at Tulane. Tell us about that.
3: Well, I think that's that's pretty interesting that he was the the chair of psychiatry and neurology for forty years, uh, and uh, you know there's still a, a Robert Heath Chair of Psychiatry at Tulane University, but they are absolutely not very interested in in you know anyone coming in and having a look at at the files. I was told that that there were no patient files left, that they were gone somehow. So there was nothing to see. I know that they have the films, uh, and I was told that they had the films, but they wouldn't show them. Uh, I went there. I talked to several researchers and and the the person who was then in in charge of of psychiatry. um, And... They seemed to be, you know, okay with trying to let me see the films, but then I received a letter probably prompted by the lawyers uh, at the university saying that, you know, the patients at the time uh, didn't consent to to having these films shown to anyone, so they couldn't show them. I think that looks like, you know, hiding behind the HIPAA law um, because – I mean, nobody could recognize these patients um and and they don't have names they have numbers and i don't know i mean I think they these films are an important historical document for you know for uh for deep brain stimulation, which is a technology that is now coming up big time so i I think it's a it's a shame that uh that they don't you know publish these films.
1: But you're actually working on a documentary that's going to be showing some of that footage,
3: right? Well, if we can get permission, that's the big thing. Uh, we, we have support from, from Robert Heath's family. So all his children have, have written and signed a letter to Tulane that, that they think that, that, you know, we should be given access to this. Um, but so far, we only have negative answers. We'll see because we're, we're pressing on. I mean, we think that, that this is important.
1: So tell us a little bit about what the status of deep brain stimulation is now, and as as you mentioned, there is there does seem to be this this pretty big resurgence in interest in it as a treatment for um, disorders, not just the movement disorders like Parkinson's, where you know it has been a, a mainstay of treatment for for a few decades now, but but things like severe depression.
3: Yeah, uh, definitely, it, it's um, it's it's a technology that's that's being used um, for depression uh in, in several research groups uh across the United States, across Europe. It's uh it has been tried out for um, let's see, anorexia, for example, for overeating. It's uh it is being used for O C D uh in the US especially. Um and uh Tourette syndrome. Uh there's a literature on that. And and there are it's it's an interesting area because um, <laughs> there. Are, if you go to the conferences where these functional neurosurgeons uh, meet and, and discuss the technology, you get the impression that that there are many sort of small trials here and there where you get you know a permission to do a small trial of say six patients or you know ten patients maybe twenty, and then there are the big uh, commercial trials uh, that have gone on for. Uh, for depression that, that have failed, maybe because they were done, you know, too early in a way, uh, that, you know, multi-center trials where you go from, uh, you go out of the lab where the technology is developed and where it seems to work really well and you, basically go and tell different groups with uh, in, in different hospitals and, and different kinds of patients and, uh, and, and different surgeons that, you know, just do the same thing. And then you see that, that the results aren't as good uh, as, as in the lab where it's originally developed. So I think it's, it's a field where there are definitely many, many possibilities, but maybe <laughs> one should hold off on, on the big commercial trials until we know more, because actually very little when you look at it, very little is known about how it actually works. It's easy to say you go into the brain, you stimulate it or you dampen the activity of this area, but how it actually works and for which patients and what targets for a certain illness uh, is the best. It, it, it's, it's really <laughs> it, it's not very well known.
1: Yeah, I mean, it seems a little bit like um, you know, in in some of those drug discovery times in the you know fifties and sixties, where you just tried a whole bunch of drugs on patients and and without thinking about sort of the mechanisms by which they might work. And you know, certainly we learned a lot about like what you know different neurotransmitter levels, how the, those might affect you know the the uh, the symptoms in in certain patients. But we also uh, made a lot of mistakes in terms of assuming that just because antidepressants work by, you know, boosting serotonin levels, therefore, you know, people who are depressed must have low levels of serotonin, which in fact is not true. So, what do you think uh, is sort of the the most promising mechanism here? I mean, is it just again just taking a, a you know grasping for straws a little bit, or or do you think that there is, you know, good work being done in in terms of trying to understand why this might work for certain patients? Uh, and not for others.
3: I certainly think that there is good work uh, being done. I, I just think, and I, I write this in the book, that maybe the big commercial trials were just, you know, uh, pre- premature. But I mean, the the groups that are developing uh, some of these techniques, say, for example, the group of Helen Mayberg uh, in Atlanta, she's now moving to New York. They have done an awful lot of work and really good quality work on depression and have come to you know figuring out you know where do you exactly place the electrodes what are the patients that you should select for this it's not every depressed patient uh and it, it, you you have to figure out from and you know from experience who are the patients that will respond to this uh similar work is being done in other groups in Europe as well, and uh, you could look at the uh, the group um, in, in Gainesville, Florida, uh, Mike Oaken and Kelly Foote, they're doing a lot of good work on, on OCD, for example, and also doing a lot of good work on uh, trying to collect the data on, on the patients where the method failed in order to really try to understand why does the method sometimes fail or not work in order to get at when does it work. So I think, yeah, uh, there are several groups, uh, you know, around the world that are doing, uh, really good work on this. And, and it, I think it will be, it will become a method, uh, that will be used for many psychiatric indications where, you know, where, where people have not responded very well to other treatments. And this is, is then sort of, for a long time, I think it will be a last resort.
1: But what about for people who are interested in sort of neuro enhancement? Do you think that this will ever be something that someone might voluntarily, uh, you know, do in order either to feel pleasure or to somehow, you know, boost some other kind of brain function? Or is that just, you know, just completely misled because it's just so invasive?
3: Well, for now, I think it's interesting that when you talk to surgeons, uh, and neurologists who have used the method in Parkinson, it's, it's, it's very, you know, it's known that, that many of these patients, if you fiddle with the settings of their electrodes, uh, they will, you know, have, uh, sort of, they can become almost hypermanic, which is a very pleasurable state to be in. Uh, it's, it's not necessarily healthy to be hypomanic, uh, but, but some of the patients will say to the doctors, can you, can you please, you know, can you turn up, (laughs) you turn up the juice here a little bit and, and the surgeon will say, but no, I, I, I will not do that because this, it's not healthy to be hypomanic. I know it feels great, but it's not healthy. And you can certainly imagine that, uh, along the way, when this um, when this technology is no longer invasive, because there is work going on in you know creating uh, brain stimulation without actually having to implant electrodes deep in the brain, then it would be much easier. And if we also have better understanding of how do you tweak you know your happiness level just a little bit how do you uh you know tweak your memory retention just a little bit i think yeah it could certainly become a method of enhancement i mean just look at um the psychedelic drugs that are coming back uh, people are microdosing lsd you know that that sounds uh, 5 years ago 6 years ago that would have sounded crazy why would you take LSD? Now people are saying, Oh, but it, it, you know, it just makes us function a little better. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happier. I'm not so stressed, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And, and, and if you have a technology that doesn't even demand that you go into the brain, maybe you have little sensors on, you know, uh, outside the brain, maybe it's, it's ultrasound, whatever it is. Um, I think it will become reality that that it will be used for enhancement. Yeah,
1: I mean, there are some of the same problems with deep brain stimulation as there are with drug tolerance, for example, where you know eventually the, the the brain is always trying to reset itself into a kind of equilibrium, and so you know if you if you start you know take a hit of cocaine, you're going to have to take more and more to get the same pleasurable feeling. Do we see evidence of that in deep brain stimulation? I don't think
3: we've we've seen uh published um you know results indicating this yet but also we haven't seen very many follow up studies on people who have had these implanted for years so that that's i think still an interesting question how the brain actually deals with this uh as far as i know for depression for example uh it doesn't seem that there is um, uh, that there is this effect that you need to turn it up or, or, uh, you know, to be- basically have more stimulation in order to get the same effect. But of course, who knows for some of the targets, uh, maybe that is the case. Um, but again, we, I think when you look at the literature, there is a lack or, of, of, you know, really good follow up studies and there aren't that many patients that, that, you know, we can really say, Oh, there's a large group here who've had, you know, implanted electrodes for years and years and years, and now we can see what happens. So that's still, I think, a bit up in the air.
1: And and, and the problem is is that you know if it stops working, it's hard to know is it the equipment that failed or is it the brain that adapted. Um, so I wanted to, I have one last question for you, which is uh, which is sort of in relation to a kind of Twitter storm recently amongst scientists who study pleasure, uh, neuroscientists who study pleasure, uh, where, you know, it's it's this debate of, is all pleasure created equal? So, you know, we sort of think of areas like the nucleus accumbens that seem to be activated or, um, you know, give us pleasure, uh, no matter the source. So, you know, whether you're eating a donut or having sex or, you know, listening to music, you know, we see some of the same circuitry activated. You know, and so some people say, well, you know, you can, you know, eating a donut is just like, you know, having sex, which is just like listening to your favorite song, which anybody who has eaten a donut and had sex and listened to their favorite song knows that's not true. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? It feels different. So yeah. so where yeah. do you stand, you know, uh, having done all this research into deep brain stimulation on this question of you know, the brain substrates of pleasure, um, you know, can we see differences in different sources of pleasure in the brain? Or, you know, what what does that
3: mean? I'm sure that I mean, just the fact that we can subjectively feel a difference, you know, the pleasure from, as you say, having sex is wildly different from the pleasure of of eating something, you might see in a brain scan that certain neurons are lighting up, uh, you know, in both Kinds of stimulation, but we also know that that these uh, pleasures are very different. So there must be, uh, you know, slightly different circuits involved uh, in slightly different ways. It's just that when we discuss this, it's it's often based on um, on, on scanner experiments, brain scan uh, experiments, and and they really have a very very poor solution uh, resolution. I mean, we don't really know. It's very these blobs that we see on brain scans—they're uh, far off from telling us which neurons exactly are involved. We can see areas of the brain, but but the pixels are, you know, it's like an old-time computer game, really. It's 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 so pixelated, it's, it's so bad. It's so the resolution is is really too poor to say that okay we have the same blob in these two pleasure experiences. So they must be the same. But when we subjectively feel that they are not the same, it's probably because more things are going on that we can't see in our experiments.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't even talk really that much about patterns of, you know, firing cells exactly. or, yeah. you know, or, or where their firing ends up uh, stimulating elsewhere in the brain, you know, what kinds of circuits it
3: drives. Yeah. And if you see a blob on a brain scan in an area, of the nucleus accumbens, there are many types of cells in the nucleus accumbens. You can't see which ones are actually lighting up when you're having sex or when you're taking cocaine or whatever it is. So, yeah, uh, tons of different circuits are, are you know, uh, playing together. In any kind of feeling and, and we have very poor understanding of exactly what is going on. So I think this discussion really, it's, it reflects the state that, uh, that brain research is in that we are still scratching the surface.
1: But of course, we're we're still really interested in how it is that we feel pleasure. So I want to remind our listeners that Lona Frank's book, The Pleasure Shock, The Rise of Deep Brain Stimulation and Its Forgotten Inventor, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Lona Frank, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you. The pleasure was mine.
2: With the knowledge of this prior work, do you feel like the field would have evolved past where it is right now
1: yeah I mean I think it would have been built on much earlier so there's actually been a kind of resurgence of interest into um, deep brain stimulation for patients with depression in the last um, you know decade or so and you know I think if we had 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 a better understanding of this work then maybe we would have done this this uh, these kinds of interventions earlier on and found that it does help now the current state of the of the uh, research is that it doesn't help everyone right so um, depression is not just about feeling bad depression is about the absence of pleasure so you think well if you stimulate the pleasure region you can you know bring people back up to baseline of course it's not that simple there are a lot of other cognitive sides to depression and you don't want invasive brain surgery where you know somebody could get an infection in the brain just from the surgery itself in in cases in which patients really are helped with therapy or with medication um, so this really is is only applies to to the most severe patients. And we've seen mixed results. So not all patients uh, seem to get better even with the implanted electrodes. Um, and but for some patients it really does help.
2: And as far as I understand it, right now we're also operating under some technical constraints. Like we don't have the specificity we want, the the power usage, like some of the just technical about implanting something like this is, is still beyond us. But also I've heard that there's a binary here with most of the experiments we either have it on or off and yeah. there's not much in between.
1: Well, sure. And so, because it's a stimulating electrode and so it's a little bit like a pacemaker and you mm-hmm. have the ability to turn it on or on or off. I don't know how, how technically difficult the surgery is these days, um, but I think that the problem is is that it's yeah, it just doesn't always, it's not always effective. So, um, and, and I think that, um, you know, the other side of it is is that it probably doesn't last forever. I mean, a lot of these implanted electrodes eventually crap out and, you know, sometimes it's because the cells that it's stimulating die from you know overstimulation. Sometimes it's because, you know, for some other reason. And so, you know, again, now you've got an invasive thing of you're taking out something and then putting another thing back in.
2: Some of the hopeful stuff I've heard of recently. So when you're talking about depression, yes, that's a huge downside because that's obviously a lifelong condition where we're dealing with a mix of age ranges. Um, But also there's deep brain stimulation projects for people with Parkinson's. And uh, with Parkinson's, I've seen two different sort of things emerging over the last couple of years. One is more wireless solutions. So it's less invasive, less recovery time. Most Parkinson patients, by and large, are older. And even if it does fail, eventually, it can restore function for a year, two years. The quality uh, oh yeah. of life... There is pretty significant. Uh,
1: more than that, the DBS uh, in Parkinson's disease is a huge success story. I mean, you see patients, and usually you do DBS once other medications like L-dopa have stopped working, which inevitably they do as the disease progresses. Um, and so, for those patients, there really isn't another option uh, at this point. I mean, maybe eventually stem cells will be an option or some other kind of treatment, but at the moment, DBS is is, is really the the thing, and it's remarkably effective. I mean, you see you see patients, you can see videos of them on YouTube. YouTube actually um, just you know Google or YouTube I guess search um, you know deep brain stimulation Parkinson's on and off and you'll see these videos of patients who are really shuffling freezing you know slowly walking down a hallway with the stimulator off they turn the stimulator on and you wouldn't be able to tell that there's anything wrong
2: and the interesting place we're at with this technology is we've proven that it works for certain cases under certain conditions with certain sets of surgeries and I know a, of a, a few groups that are trying to get FDA approval on this, but this is—we're talking about a brain, like something that, like, can we get through regulation when we're also dissimilar?
1: Well, I mean, there. I mean, I, yeah, I think. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these I know have a, FDA approval already, right? Yeah, for there's the reg- use, but
2: there's regimes for getting this done. But what I'm saying is, like, we have to move away from the expectation that even if these things continue to be approved they're never going to work for everyone yeah in the way we expect pills do
1: yes that's true that's true although pills don't work for everyone
2: either. no they don't but that's the lie of that <laughs> <is. That's true.
1: laughs> you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't know that from a lot of the commercials. <laughs> So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. We'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joelle, Jonathan Goorsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Miller, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. And if you'd like an ad-free version of the show, just uh, subscribe to us on Patreon by pledging $5 or more a month. Uh, And you will join all these fine folks in getting ad-free versions of every one of our episodes.
2: And special shout out to Dan Pomeroy, a science policy expert at MIT that talked my head off about this show because he's such an Uber fan. Thanks for listening, Dan.
1: You can visit our website at inquiring.show. And then again, you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and on Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like, a picture of your brain where we should put the stimulator, to contact at inquiring.show.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at IndreVis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. This episode is brought to you by Physical Attraction, a new podcast about physics, science, and technology. From artificial intelligence and climate change to stellar formation and Newtonian dynamics, you'll hear interviews with experts and narrative episodes that explore these ideas. Find them online at physicspodcast.com or follow them on Twitter at physicspod and subscribe to Physical Attraction on Stitcher or wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode was brought to you by Wondery's new series, American Innovations. Science and technology have transformed the world we live in. But how did we get here? On Wondery's new series, American Innovations, you'll hear the stories behind DNA and the mapping of the human genome, the rise of the personal computer, artificial intelligence, and more. Don't miss a single episode. Search for American Innovations on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, or head to Wondery.fm slash minds. That's Wondery.fm slash minds.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and